Thank you. First, I want to uh, thank the conference committee and for inviting me. It's quite an honor to be invited over here, and it was very nice for uh, Glenn and Deborah to pick up my bride, Blanche, and me at uh, Jacksonville, and it's quite uh, beautiful over here. I came from the West Texas area, which is uh, pretty desolate as compared to over here on the coast. Uh, my name is Scotty, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, folks. And by the grace of God, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 710 group of Midland, Texas, I haven't had a drink containing alcohol since June the 9th of 1963, for which I'm extremely grateful. You know, a lot of times they say that uh, if you, some areas, if you give your dry dates, you're kind of bragging. But in our group, uh, we do it so we can stay awake for the new live members and the new coming, and everybody gets up. If an old-timer that's got over 10 years starts talking, everybody gets up and goes and gets coffee. You know, they say, one time they asked an old boy from our area named Jim, said, how do you get to be an old-timer? And he said, well, that's real easy. You don't drink and you don't die. And that's all there is to it. You know, uh, when I came in here, somebody handed me some announcements. I don't know why, I guess because I got this suit on. They thought I was running this thing, so... Uh, Let's see, the manager of the Jekyll Island Convention Center said that in case of fire, would all the Alanons please remain seated till the alcoholics are clear of the building. Thank you. I hope you will comply. Let's see, uh, Randy Sellers is opening a halfway house for girls that won't go all the way. You know, Randy really looked nice when he got all dressed up here, you know. Randy took, went down to that outfit. He went down to the clothing store and said, Give me something to go with this suit. And they gave him a bottle of cheap wine. <laughs> so you know how they think of Randy around here. Say, by the way, here's one. Is there a Mr. Moore? Is there a Mr. Moore here? Oh, yeah, okay. There's a lady down at the Holiday Inn in room 638 hollering for more. Would you go take care of that? You know, my wife, Blanche, travels with me all the time. She's my group conscience, so I have to take her with me. She's sitting right over there in the green. There's my wife, Blanche. She always sits. She always sits close to the exit in case I blow this deal. We can, we can be out of here. You know, one time we were traveling and we went out to Las Vegas. And uh, we were in this hotel and casino and she walked in the other room and I was standing in the casino playing these slot machines. And this lady of the evening walked up to me, and she tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, Hi, big boy. How would you like to play around a little bit? 
I said, oh, no, I don't think so. Thank you anyway. She says, oh, come on and be a sport. Now, not that I was interested, (laughs) but my curiosity got the best of me. And I said, lady, how much does it cost? What do you charge for your services? She said, what do you think I'm worth? And I said, oh, about $10. And, boy, she got indignant as hell and just spun around and walked out of there. Well, the next morning, Blanche and I came down from the hotel lobby. We came down the elevator, and just as we got there, there was that same gal standing there. She looked at me. She looked at Blanche. She said, see what you get for $10? (laughs) Now, I told that story one time up in North Carolina, and after it was over, this little old lady came up to Blanche, and she said, I think that's terrible, his talking about you like that. And Blanche said, and I quote, Oh, don't worry, he was the only one I charged. (laughs) Well, let's see, here's one. A man walked into the doctor's office and said, I can't pee. The doctor said, How old are you? He said, 93. The doctor said, You've peed enough. You know, one time there were two little boys named Jimmy and Johnny. Boy, they were cute little old kids. And they decided, these little brothers decided they wanted to learn how to cuss like their parents and the big people. They'd heard them all talking and everything. So that night they got up in their bedroom and they decided to think of the worst words they could think of. Jimmy says, you know, the worst word I ever heard was hell. That's awful. Johnny said, Oh, no. The baddest word there is is ass. said, That's nasty. So they lay in bed and practiced saying those things and everything. The next morning they went down to breakfast. Their mother asked Jimmy, said, What do you want for breakfast? And he said, Hell, I think I'll have some oatmeal. She picked him up and tanned his hide and threw him back down that seat and looked at Johnny and said, What do you want? He said, You can bet your ass I don't want any of that oatmeal. <laughs> Let's see. A man got a vasectomy at Sears Roebuck. And every time he got romantically involved, the garage door went up. (laughs) Damn, it's hard to stay sober with stuff like this. (laughs) You know, I did say my name was Scotty and I'm an alcoholic, but my real name, my given name is John Scott. My mother named me John after the toilet and Scott after the tissue. (laughs) And that's why I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Now, a lot of you people have run around and gotten in these one-on-one groups and talk it over trying to figure out how you became an alcoholic. But I already know, so I didn't ever have to worry about that. 
And it all started up in Oklahoma where I came from, a little town called Ponca City, Oklahoma. And I grew up there, and I had a couple of sisters older than me, and we're just a kind of a normal family. And when I got to be five years old, they sent me off to school because I was the tallest kid in town, and they just assumed I ought to be in school, so I just went on. <clears throat> Things were very uneventful until I got to be 13 years old. And two things that happened in my life more or less influenced the outcome of the direction I was going. One of them was that my father died when I was 13 and left me without any masculine parental care, and I was very susceptible to persuasion of what the big boys did. And the next thing, at 13 years old, I had graduated up and I was sent to high school. And I was the tallest one there, and I was 13, and I was an emotional midget, and I really listened, and I wanted to be like all the big boys and do everything they did. I just wanted to grow up fast. And I started running with these boys that seemed to be knowing how to live a little bit. And so one time we got this old boy's old Model A Ford, and went down to an old bootlegger and got a gallon jug of Sweet Lucy wine, homemade wine for $1.75, and went down on the Arkansas River and drank that until we either threw up or passed out. It didn't make any difference which. The next day was Saturday, and boy, I felt bad, but we always went down into the front of the Rexall drugstore and hung around there, and here came these other four boys that were with me the night before, and they vowed to never do that again. And I vowed to do it better. <laughs> you know, I took that one drink and spent the whole time fantasizing about things. It changed my opinion of life. It made me think that I was better looking. It made me think I was smarter. It made me sit around and think what I was going to tell the pretty girls. It made me an all-state athlete in my mind. Everything that that booze did for me, that alcohol, was what I wanted. It was exactly, it was a release from all the tensions and fears of a 13-year-old kid thrust out in the world that didn't know what the hell was going on. I absolutely loved that feeling. I went on through high school, and I did some experimental drinking, ha-ha drinking and all that, and that was about it. And when I graduated from high school in 1942, some of you are white-headed and can remember this time, World War II was going on, and that was one of the most popular wars that ever came along. It was just really people were lining up to go get in it. Everybody just really idolized the servicemen, and the movies were free, and everybody would give you the Red Cross, give you donuts whether you want them or not, and everything else. And I went into the Navy. And during the time I was in the Navy, it was rather acceptable to drink. 
if you were rather passive, you could just get along and the MPs and the SPs would get you back to your ship or your base, whatever it was, with no, no trouble, and you just got along. I call that military drinking. And I did that because everybody else did, and it was kind of acceptable. I got out of the service after it was over, and I was fortunate enough to qualify to go to college on the GI Bill. Now, that reason I did that was because they were going to pay me to go to college. So I thought that's the best deal I ever had. So I went, and I went to the University of Oklahoma in my home state, and all the time I was there, I was on the silver cure. You know, I'd just drink till I'd run out of money. That was real simple. When you don't have any money, you don't drink. And, and you know, I hadn't learned how to get credit yet, you know, and write hot checks and do certain things. So when I ran out of money, I just quit drinking. And at that time, after World War II, they had a lot of, they couldn't keep up with the servicemen coming home. They had a lot of green beer. And uh, we had some called Silver Fox beer. It tasted like part of the fox was still in it. <laughs> and it was so green you didn't ever want to sneeze in public because bad things had happened when you drank that beer. Well, I rocked around there and got a degree in geological engineering from the University of Oklahoma and went to work for an oil company, and they sent me to Midland, Texas in 1950. And I was sent down there, and I was uh, given an opportunity to work in the oil fields. Midland, Texas, over there you handle the oil fields from Abilene, Texas, to Roswell, New Mexico, in a huge semi arid climate out there, which is about good for a little dry land cotton farming and some and a lot of oil. So they sent me over by Hobbs, New Mexico, to look after some of these drilling rigs for this company I was working for. Well, see, there I was with a good paycheck and a company car in Hobbs, New Mexico, that had open bars, guitar music, and dirty-legged women. And it was pretty exciting for an old boy like me. Well, I'll tell you about Hobbs. One time, they had a beauty contest in Hobbs, and nobody won. <laughs> Some little old girl came in third, and that's about all I could do. And they gave her the prize and went on and uh, took care of that. But So that's the kind of town Hobbs was in. It was not... It didn't help your intellect too much to be around Hobbs. Well, as long as you did your job in that, that part of the country and in that time of the year, if you stayed out by the drilling rig and did your work and called in the morning report, they kind of allowed you or expected you to. They never did actually tell you it's all right, but they condoned drinking in the oil field. And you could just... Everybody could kind of get away with it that wanted to drink, and it seemed like I wanted to drink, and I got away with it, and I call that oil field drinking. You know, they have all kinds of drinking, that's oil field drinking, that's pretty tough in that part of the, the days. Well, in my life, I was getting settled down, and I decided to go back to Oklahoma and marry this old gal I'd gone with for some time up there, and we came, brought her back down to Midland, and as a result of this marriage, 
we had a daughter. And right then, something bad happened in my life. I wasn't ready to settle down with the responsibility, and this changed the whole attitude. Life is, after this daughter came, life as I knew it ceased to exist. And, you know, and, and I wasn't ready for all this responsibility and, and I this fatherhood and husbandhood and do what you should and get home when you could, I just couldn't handle it. <laughs> and I just made a complete mess of that. And as a result of my attitude about this and failing to accept the responsibility, this marriage was dissolved. Now, I'll accept half the blame for that dissolvement of that marriage, but I didn't put half into the marriage. But as a result, she and that daughter went back up to Oklahoma, and I started living the way I thought I should. I thought the world owed me a living for some reason, and I expected to get after it. Well, I, an old boy had a little old house. So I moved in, he had an extra bedroom, and I moved in with him, and he was a heavy drinker, and he was the kind of guy I really liked. And you know, I'll tell you the difference between an alcoholic and a heavy drinker. A heavy drinker is one on Saturday night, he says, I'm going to go buy a jug, and I'm going to go drink the whole damn thing, I'm going to make an ass out of myself, I'm going to be rude, and I'm probably going to make a few people mad at me. And he does it. And then on Sunday, he'd say, I think I'll have a couple of beers and get a sandwich and watch a little TV. And he did that. I'd say, I think I'll have a couple of beers with you. I'd be knee-walking drunk by dark. I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't, you know, I, I didn't realize it was the first drink. I just thought if you quit, you wouldn't get drunk. Well, he and I got to rocking along and having a little trouble with our lives. I did. And his, his social ladder was going up and mine was going down. And sometimes we'd get invited to, you know, parties that have these finger sandwiches and chips and dips and everything. And I'd go get dressed up to go over there. And I always took a few drinks because I never wanted to go to a party sober. You know, that was kind of unfair. It's kind of dull. So I'd always get belted down. And one time I walked in this place about 6 o'clock in the evening and shook hands with the host, tripped over his feet, spun around, and sat down backwards in a whole bowl of guacamole dip. <laughs> now, that is all right, except the next day I took those pants to the cleaning shop, and that lady held them up and didn't know from which direction that dip had come. And she just walked off with them like that. <laughs> Things like that just always seemed to follow me around. One time, when it kept getting a little worse, we decided, this old boy I was living with, we decided to repay a few people that had entertained us. So we got a case of beer, a bottle of old blended whiskey. I think it's Imperial or Seagram's or, you know, that kind. Of, and... Uh, we got some hot dogs and hamburgers, and we are going to repay a few debts. Well, one, he came out in the kitchen, and I was standing over in the corner with that bottle going, <laughs> He said, What the hell are you doing? I said, I was having a little drinky-poo. <laughs> he said, Well, why don't you come out in the living room where all the guests are and have a drink with them? 
And I said, well, I thought maybe I might be getting a little behind, and I thought everybody was laughing me and I was going to catch up. He said, I can't understand this. This is your house. This is your party. This is your whiskey. And you're standing out here in the kitchen stealing drinks from yourself. <laughs> he said, what the hell are you doing that for? And I said, I don't know. It just seemed like the thing to do. Did it ever just seem like the thing to do? You know, these drunks that pull some of the most ridiculous things, and you've all done it, when you did it, it seemed so logical. But then when somebody asks you why you did it, all you can say is, it just seemed like the thing to do. And you know, the only place I've ever found people that understood was in AA. Because you tell a civilian, after you've run over his darn mailbox on purpose, that it just seemed like the thing to do, he doesn't quite understand. But you'll say it in an AA meeting and everybody, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, oh, I did that. <laughs> well, as I say, this old boy was kind of drifting away from me. He was kind of wanting me to saturate his ass with my absence, and so he was moving on up the social ladder. And I found a place in Midland, and every darn town in the United States has an old watering hole that you all like to hang around. And this was a combination beer joint and honky-tonk named the Club Samoa. And I'll tell you how urbane this place was. It had a 50-cent cover charge to keep out the riffraff. <laughs> And the restrooms were always out of order after 9 o'clock at night. I don't know why. But I'd sit out there, and I felt comfortable with all my beer-drinking buddies out there and sitting at the bar, and they had this bartender named Skeets. And, you know, I'd get to drinking, and I'd run out of money, and I'd just lay a little paper on him, and I'd write him a check. And he knew that it wasn't any good, and I knew that he knew it. <laughs> But also, I knew that that was the only place in town that I could hang paper on anybody when I was broke, so I'd have to come back on payday and pick these things up. And sometimes I'd get out there and we'd look, and we, I couldn't quite make out the signature. And we'd argue on whether I wrote that check or not. <laughs> so finally it got so bad that I'd write one and he'd just sign it. <laughs> So it'd know where it was. And you know, it's pretty hard to drink the way I thought I should and make a living, too. You know, alcoholics have to be brilliant to do that. You know, it doesn't make any difference whether you're a janitor or an executive and you're a darned alcoholic. It's hard work to do all that. Well, I'd sit out there and I'd be kind of lonesome and thinking about life and wishing that if things weren't so bad... Maybe I wouldn't have to drink so much. And bad things had started happening in my life. Things that I didn't feel as though I had any control over, and it started bothering me. And the greatest bugaboo 
of all that happens to every alcoholic, every single alcoholic, that may be what binds us the most, is that utter, consuming feeling of loneliness. That damn stuff started coming in around me, that loneliness, where I'd just cry out I was so lonely. And I'd be around people and I was lonely. And you know, you talk to people in AA, they understand, and Al-Anons understand it too. Because they are, maybe they're, maybe they're so lonely, they, they're so frustrated, caught in a web of an old drunk drinking, and they're, the Al-Anons are lying to their kids, they're lying to the neighbor, they're lying to their spouse's boss, and they can't talk to anybody. They don't know what to do. And sure as hell they can't talk to the drunk. They haven't talked to each other for ten years, you know. So this is a family feeling. This is a binds us, this feeling of loneliness. Well, I'd be sitting there at this old bar drinking that long neck pearl beer. And I'd take one down and all of a sudden, and the froth would come up in my mouth. And I'd think, uh-oh, I better eat a little something. So I'd reach down there at the end of the bar, and they always had this big old jar of pickle weenies with a purple hard-boiled egg floating in there and a couple of Miller moths. And I'd swash around in there and get me a good old, in that formaldehyde, and grab me one of those old pickle weenies, and I'd shake it like a thermometer till it quit quivering. And I'd pop that sucker down in my mouth and chase it with pearl beer, and man, that was living. That's what life was all about. And I'd go up to ask some old gal to dance. I'd say, honey, how about it? My breath would peel paint five feet away. <laughs> She'd say, get the hell out of here. And this was all I knew about life. I could hardly wait to get out there and do it again the next night. Because I figured, you know... In AA, they always say you better go to a meeting because somebody there might need you. Well, I went to the Club Samoa because I might need somebody there. I just wanted to be around people. I wasn't a closet drinker. And the more I drank, the lonelier I got, and I wanted to be around people. And this was a, a darn feeling that just wouldn't go away. You know, every once in a while, I'd go back up to Oklahoma to visit my mother poor old widow woman, and she had arranged to have my daughter over there. And I'd go in there in town and try to stay on the wagon to be the boy that she wanted me to be. And every once in a while, I'd sneak off some old high school buddies, and I'd come in snockered. And the next day, she'd say, oh, that's all right. He's just an energetic lad letting off a little steam. And, you know, she was protecting me. And she, I was the apple of her eye. I was the one that had gone to college. I was a successful professional man. And she had built me up so much to her friends that she refused to believe that this thing was happening to me. She would not allow this to happen to me in her mind. You know, when she died, I'd been sober nine years, and to that time she had never acknowledged that I was in AA. She just knew I was getting better and I was acting better and she thought it was because I was becoming mature. You know, if I'd have gone home at that time and stayed with her, she would have killed me. 
she would have protected me so much. You know, when I was growing up, we had an old aunt named Aunt Grace. And had a big old house, and they had a three-story house, and up in the belfry, way up there in the attic, you'd see old Aunt Grace up there wandering around and singing out the window and everything. And that's back in those days, that's all they knew what to do with a, with a drunk in the family. They'd just protect them and lock them up in the, in the back room. And I'll tell you, you know how, well, there's a Catholic prayer that says, Hail Mary, full of grace. Well, people would go by and they'd see grace up there and they'd say, Hail Mary, grace is full. <laughs> and she'd be up there yodeling and singing and carrying on. And that's the way families took care of drunks back in those days. Well, I was still rocking along and things were falling in on me fast in Midland, Texas. And one time... On the see New Year's Eve in 1962, it came out in the radio and in the newspapers that if anybody had too much to drink and didn't want to drive their car home, they could call the police department and the police would take them home, no questions asked. Well, in April, I called them again <laughs> from the Club Samoa. And here they came, you know, and here's an old bear joint, honky-tonk, and the door flies open, and here comes a cop, and everybody just hiding out for this darn thing. And they'd say, no, don't worry about it, we came to get Scotty. Oh, him, yeah, he's over there. Well, usually this real nice cop would come out there and get me and take me home and help me in the car, and sometimes he'd get me in the house and even take my shoes off. Well, this time I got the other cop. <laughs> Okay, so we take out and we get the car. He says, now, don't puke, you son of a bitch. So we get in the car and he says, Scotty, I want to tell you something. We've been talking about you down at the police station. And we've decided that we're not going to run any more taxi service for you. So this is it. From now on, when you want to get home, you're on your own. And he got up in front of where I was living and just threw me out and went on. Well, now it's so bad I couldn't even get picked up by the police. It was just awful. This guy had asked me that he thought that, he said, Scotty, I think you're going crazy. You're doing things that just don't make sense. And I think you ought to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you ought to do, but I can't, I can't look after you anymore. You've got to move out. And at the same time, my job was terminated. Isn't that nice? My job was terminated. That's, that's the way it said on my resume. There I was. I had no place to go, no job, no money. The cops wouldn't even pick me up. And I was getting ready to go home to Mama, a 37-year-old man going to pile in on that old widow woman. Every time I think of it, it just it really scares me. Well, I was trying to figure out the dilemma. This guy had given me a week to get my things together and get out of where we were living. Well, I went down the next morning to the pool hall to have breakfast. I, used, I had a nice chili dog and a pearl beer for breakfast. And I was talking to the bartender, and he said, Scotty... Did you hear about Jim P? He done joined A and A. 
And he's been sober for about four months, he said. Hell, I hadn't even missed him. <laughs> I want to tell you about Jim Pete. Well, his name's Jim Pocket. He knows his name. Why shouldn't we? <laughs> well, old Jim Pocket was the kind, he was the worst drunk in town. Just terrible. When he went somewhere, bad things always happened. I mean, he was just, he was just a cloud over everything. And I loved to go where Jim was because I could hide my drunkenness under the umbrella of his obnoxiousness. <laughs> and if we wound up in somebody's old house, you know, there's old Jim making a shambles of everything, and I go out in the kitchen, what the hell are we going to do about Jim? <laughs> and I loved Jim because he was so bad when he drank. And Jim had four months sobriety. And I don't know why, but the, I decided, well, I'd better call Jim. You know, I didn't even like him. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to call Jim and see what, what's going on. I had no earthly idea that I could quit drinking. You, know, you see, I thought that alcohol was the solution. I had no idea that it was the problem. When I got up in the morning, I didn't go intend to make an ass out of myself. I didn't intend to do the things I did and fall down drunk and act terrible. I always thought, today I'm going to do it just right. And I'm going to drink like I used to and capture something in the past, that enjoyment of drinking. And have it where you get that nice, beautiful glow and everything is so happy. It kind of reminds me of when you're out when you're a kid and you used to toast marshmallows over a fire and you'd get an old coat hanger and you'd straighten it out and you'd put a marshmallow on it and you'd put it over the fire and you'd get it just right in the glow of that and the anticipation of that marshmallow. It looked just beautiful. And before you could get it out of the fire, the son of a bitch had burned. <laughs> That's the way my drinking was. I'd try to get up to that beautiful plateau, and then I'd have one more drink. And then I'd go, I think I'd What'd he say? And I could understand people, but nobody could understand me. And nothing worse than being drunk and sitting there listening to people talk about you. Like you just, well, you might as well not exist, because hell, you can't answer. <laughs> so I was going to go over to Jim and tell him about my problems. He had four months sobriety, so I walked over there, and I said, Jim, I've got a problem. And he says, oh, yeah. I said, I started talking to him about the terrible way I've got in my life. And, you know, here I was. I didn't even know this guy. I didn't even know about AA. I didn't know anything about it. And I start, for some reason the chemistry is there, I start confiding in him. You know, I lived over there and I shared that house with that old boy, and I wouldn't confide in him. I wouldn't confide in my boss, my mother, or anything else. And here's this old confessed drunk. <laughs> 
and I'm going to confide in Him. I don't know why. I started talking, and before I could even get about three sentences, Jim started telling me about it. Do you know that anybody with four months sobriety knows everything there is to know about AA? <laughs> and he was going to tell me. He started talking about the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, the serenity prayer, Dr. Bob, Uncle Bill, the little red wagon. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. The only thing I knew is that he cared, and he gave a damn. And he was talking to me and saying, you're going to be all right. You know, they say, I didn't know what he meant. They say that animals, alcoholics, and children under two don't know what you say, but they know how you feel. And I knew how Jim felt. He started this feeling and was telling me all about it and that this would be all right and life was going to be all right and the anticipation and you don't worry we can handle this you can do this and the tears started running down my cheeks that finally somebody gave a damn about me somebody could talk about my problem to me somebody cared i was selfish enough that i wanted to share this problem and he was accepting it well and I felt that warm feeling. I didn't know what was happening. He said, Scotty, you don't look very good. He said, maybe I ought to fix you a little orange juice and honey. And I thought, oh, hell, damn, that sounds bad right now. <laughs> you see... I didn't want to, I threw up a lot when I was drinking. And I'm proud of, I was good at throwing up. <laughs> you know, one time in the Navy, I was up there in Norfolk, Virginia, walking down the street in my Navy whites. And the city police in Norfolk didn't take highly to the sailors up there messing up their town. And they had a sign up there in the courthouse lawn that said, Sailors and dogs keep off the grass. <laughs> well, I'd be walking along and I'd get the urge to throw up. And I'd just turn my head and... <sighs> I wouldn't even bend over. I never got any on my whites. I just... <sighs> Somebody driving along in a car would say, What the hell was that? <laughs> They had it in downtown Norfolk. They had a beer joint that all the sailors hung out in. And it was so crowded in there in the restroom, they had taken the window panes out and they had this casement window and they just put bars and a hog wire screen in there. And I'd go in there and it'd be real crowded, about three deep around doing what you were doing in there. And I'd just walk up to that hog wire screen and I'd just. Now, that was all right if you hadn't been eating spaghetti. <laughs> and that just made a hell of a mess in there. 
And I'd run out of that old restroom and I'd grab the bartender and some damn sailor puked in there. And they had an old green garden hose right in there and he'd just turn it on and he'd water everybody down, you know. They'd, everybody out there would come out wet where he's washing that spaghetti off the... One time at the Club Samoa, I was sitting there solving the problems at the world at the bar and this little old boy took exception to me as they always did in a bar. He said, I don't like your face. And I said, well, it's the only one I got. <laughs> You're kind of smart, Alec, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm just stating the fact. And he says, well, come on outside. I want to get a piece of you, you know. Well, hell, we went out the side door of the Club Samoa. And, you know, everybody in there always bails out, fight, fight, fight. <laughs> So we all go out there, and this old boy's serious. I mean, he's bobbing and weaving. And... I just throw up. <laughs> that old boy's good God almighty. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, in a fight, an old beer joint fight, you never see a guy getting hit while he's throwing up. <laughs> Now, any of you that practice, that plan on going out and getting a postgraduate work, remember that. You won't get hit. I walked back in the Samoa and this, you get away from me. Hell, everybody gave me a lot of room. Well, I told Jim I didn't want any orange juice and honey because it wouldn't go. Because honey won't let go. I said, I'm going to have to pass that, Jim. And he says, well, you look like you're about to go into DTs. He said, i got to get you something to eat. So we did go down. We got some scrambled eggs, hard scramble where I didn't have to chase it. That guy's going out and throw up right now. <laughs> so I got the hard-boiled eggs and some dry toast, and I did eat I did drink a little orange juice and got my stomach settled, and he said, Scotty, there's an AA meeting tonight. Why don't we go down there? And I got to thinking, I didn't know anything about AA. And I said, Jim, I want to tell you something. I'm in pretty bad shape, and I don't think I can afford to join anything right now. <laughs> he said, Scotty, I want to tell you something. He said, we've got a nice little place down there where we meet, and there are three doors in that building. We'll go in there, and you can sit by any door you want to, and if you hear something that you don't agree with or don't like, just get up and leave, and I'll give you the keys to the car. He said, when we go down there, I'll guarantee you, you don't have to sign anything, you don't have to say anything, and you don't have to pay anything. I said, I believe I'll go with you. That's better than the Club Samoa. <laughs> so we went down there to this club, and we walked in the side door, and the, this guy, the late Ed Alstron, walked by, and he just looked at me, and he said, Don't worry about it, Scotty. We understand, and just laughed like hell and just walked on. I thought, what have I gotten into? And we went out into this kitchen area where the coffee pot was, and this guy named Joe Clary, now, he's gotten a little older, but at that time, 
He was a self-appointed sergeant at arms of our group. He's the one that got there and turned the lights on, saw that the air conditioning was on, that the heater was on. He sold the grapevines, and he met every new member at the door. Every group needs a Joe Clary. Joe gave me a scalding cup of coffee filled to the brim, and I had the shakes, you know. And he introduced me to 30 people faster than I've ever been introduced in my life. And I want to tell you how I was dressed. I had long hair and short hair was in. I had put on my cleanest white shirt with chili on the front. And I had these pants that were pleated. Well, I weigh about 220 now. Well, when I came into AA, I weighed 144 pounds. Alcohol did not bloat me. <laughs> and because of this, I just, these pleated pants, I just pull them back a little farther and like this where they look pretty good in the front. <laughs> but in the back, it looked like I had one pocket. <laughs> and I had taken an ice pick to that belt pushed a few more holes in there and had this, and you'd walk down the street and the old bell would flop, flop, flop. You can see a good old drunk walking down the street and check his belt. Flop, flop, flop. They're not going to waste it when they got leather under their arm. And my shoes, the leather on the toes of my shoes were completely scuffed off from being drug around the Club Samoa parking lot. <laughs> and my glasses were askew from sleeping in them and on them. And I had a paper clip right through there, you know, to hold them together. And it looked like a fly out there all the time. And Joe Clary said, you're looking good. <laughs> We walked, we walked in that meeting, and they put me right up front between Jim and Joe. So this guy gets up there, and he starts this meeting, and he started reading this stuff, and I didn't know what he's talking about. Oh, and he's just reading on and on and on, everybody cleaning their fingernails and looking around. And pretty soon he says, we will now have a moment of silent meditation. And everybody bent over, and it got real quiet, and my stomach went... One of those pick-a-weenies had just done a backflip. And I looked around, and the people in there were taking turns, pointing and waving at me. Ha, 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 yeah, nice to see you. Keep coming back. It works now. We love you, you know, and all that. And I'm sitting there, and pretty soon the chairman calls on this big old rotund-looking guy named Neil, bald-headed, 12 years sobriety. And he gets up and he says, Well, all I know about this program is if you don't take a drink, you can't get drunk. I said, Hell, I know that. <laughs> that was one of the most stupid things I'd ever heard in my life. And you know, that guy went back and he damn near got a standing ovation for that. <laughs> They're all patting him on the back and congratulating him. He's just walking along. Like 
The next guy they called was a fellow named Marty that had 18 months sobriety. Well, he had 19 months sobriety. 18 of it was spent in the Texas State Penitentiary. <laughs> and I thought, well, this ought to be a novel. We'll talk about, you know, how you get picked up and what the police say and the parole board and all that and about jail. And, you know, Marty got to talking. And he never talked about that. He never talked about the pen and the parole. He started talking about honesty and love and acceptance and sharing and caring and gratitude. And all these things that just made life sound so beautiful. And I looked at Monty. Here's a guy with not one damn thing going for him. And he's so happy that he just could almost cry. And I thought, by golly, if Monty can do it, I'll sure as hell give it a try. The next guy that got up was a lot. All these groups have him. He was a big book quoter. <laughs> and he would get up there in all his resplendent glory and say, and in the big book. And he would quote chapter and verse. And you ever notice the longer they're sober, the longer they'll hold that pose. <laughs> and in the big book. And he was pointing kind of out that door, and I looked out there down the hall, there was a, a door out in there. And I thought, well, that's where they've got this, and I bet you they've got in there a kneeling bench and a prayer bench and a candelabra and a nice music and probably laid out on a pedestal is the big book. <laughs> and if I'm sober long enough, maybe they will let me sign up where I can go in and read these things out of the big book. <laughs> Well, I want to tell you something. About four days later, I got up enough nerve and I opened that door and it was the damn furnace. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, for anybody that may be here, this is the big book. It isn't the good book, although it is good. It's the gospel according to Jack Daniels is what it is. <laughs> And it was written in 1939 by Bill Wilson and the Hundred Founding Fathers in all perpetuity so anyone following can read the big book and never, never to this day find anything out of date in the big book. <laughs> it's just there. Well, after that, they decided they were going to pass the plate. And the guy said, if you don't have a dollar, take one. <laughs> and I wanted one. <laughs> but I was too embarrassed. I drunk all that free coffee, and I had the Arbuckle thumps right then. And I looked across the aisle, and this guy had sitting there, and he just put his hand down that basket and shook all those dollar bills up and smiled and handed it on, so I did that. 
We got all through and they said, we will now stand, hold hands, and say the Lord's Prayer. And we got up, and there were 31 of us in there, and it got real quiet, and we started praying. And out in West Texas, people talk slow, and they pray slow. And as we were saying the Lord's Prayer, there were gaps in the prayer, and you could hear the sound of silence in that prayer. And I got to thinking here, 31 lousy drunks praying to God as they understand Him and meaning it. And I was praying right along with them. And right then, in that meeting, I felt the hand of God touch my shoulder. Something came over me of that feeling of cleanliness or whatever it was, or relief, or surrender, or submission. But to this day, over 26 years, and I've never had another drink of whiskey since that time. When we got through, Jim invited me to move in with him because I had no place to go. So I accepted moving in an old duplex. The next day, he said, well, we got to go to a meeting tonight, and I got off track when you called, but he said, uh, we got to go by, and he said, i got to pick up some babies. And I said, okay. <laughs> I thought, there's something about this program that hadn't explained to me. And he said, no, I thought they meant bimbos like they did over in Hobbs, you know. And he said, no, we call them babies. Someplace they call them pigeons. He said, they're the new members. That when they come in, we help them through their most difficult days and bring them to AA. And sometimes they ask us to sponsor them, and he explained that. And he said, so I'm helping these people get to the meetings and making them feel comfortable. Jim had four months sobriety. We went by and picked up this old gal named Wanda. Weird Wanda. <laughs> I want to tell you, Weird Wanda had three months sobriety. And she had read the big book. She had read this book, Sobriety and Beyond, and she was into reading palms and tea leaves. <laughs> and she got in the car, and, Bill, and Jim says, Well, we've got to go pick up Bill. So we went on, and we went out this house, and here was a guy named Bill that had two months sobriety. He used to be a prize fighter, and he went like this a lot. The phone had rang, and he'd go a couple of rounds. Well, Bill had two months sobriety, and he got in the back seat with the palm reader, and we're off and running, and he says, one more, and we're ready to go. And we went by this house and got this little old gal named Rosalie. She was 20 years old, and she was addict, had been addicted to pills. And you know, in 1963, I had never seen anybody addicted to pills. That, you know, that just... I'd heard of people drinking aspirin and Coke when you were a kid, and it didn't make you do anything but pee. <laughs> and this... So here she comes, and her name was Rosalie, and she had a great big bouffant lavender hairdo. 
and gnats were flying around. <laughs> and she had one month sobriety, and she floated, being on those, still on the pills, you know, uh, the result of them. She hadn't had any in a month. And everything you said to Rosalie, she said, all right. You'd say, how are you, Rosalie? All right. Get in the car, Rosalie. All right. <laughs> so Rosalie got in the back seat with Bill and the Palm Raider and were off and running. There are five of us in that car, and we had ten months and one day sobriety. <laughs> We're riding along, and we just, we look like a tree full of owls. Everybody just looking around. And old Jim had a great big Lincoln with a dent in the door and the hubcap missing. You know, just a typical AA car. We get down to the club. And Jim walks out and goes strutting in like the Pied Piper, and all four of us are right behind him. And boy, he's proud of himself. He's got four babies. We walked through, and the, the darn old-timers looked up from the gin rummy table and said, I bet not a damn one of them make it. <laughs> you know, I like to tell this story for the people that might be new here. How many people are here for their first Convention. Would you raise your hand, please? Look at that. Now, that's beautiful. Now, I'm talking to you people. I'm telling this about Jim and his four months sobriety with four babies. Because you may be called on to make a 12-step call. And you won't have time to go by the club and pick up other people. You won't have time to pass this off to somebody else. It may be you that represents AA. And the reason is there's something in the way you're carrying your sobriety, whether it's one month or four months or one year, that somebody liked. Or somebody liked enough to refer them to you. And like it or not, if you're sober in AA, you represent the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So wear it with a badge of honor. If you make a 12-step call, tell them why you're still in AA. That's all you have to do. And tell them how good you feel. Well, I started going with Jim to meetings. And within that one week, you talk about fate. This old boy that wasn't even in AA called me up, got a hold of me, and said, Scotty, I hear that you're having a little trouble and you need a job, and I've got a job for a geological engineer. Now, those are not easy to find. He said, and why don't you come up here and we'll see if we can work something out. You know, this is just faith, the hand of God. You know, faith is the hand of God when he chooses to remain anonymous. That's all it is. Well, I worked for that man for five years, knowing that if I ever got out of line, that he might let me go, and that's what I needed at that time. 
Well, while I was working for him and going to AA and finally going home going to bed, I figured something was missing in my life, the romantic aspect. And I had a couple of bucks in my pocket then, and I felt a little more comfortable. And you know, I decided on Thursday night we had the AA meeting on one side and the Al-Anon meeting on the other, and they celebrated birthdays and had cake and ice cream, and it was rather festive. So I decided that night I'd go over on the Al-Anon side and scout around and see if I could find me a ripe one. (laughs) And I went over there and looked around, and lo and behold, there was Blanche. She had come down from Arkansas. She had gotten rid of an old bad drunk, didn't want anything to do with him, and she had moved to Midland, Texas, to try and get straightened out, and a friend of hers that was married invited her to stay until she could get on her feet, and there she was with a little four-year-old boy under one arm and an Al-Anon book under the other arm trying to clean up the wreckage of her past and doing what she could do to do help herself along. And she didn't want another thing to do with a drunk. Especially me. She was a smart ass. Well, I kept ogling that old gal and looking after her and everything and trying to say hello, and she'd throw that old nose up and everything. Well, this was in August. Well, in October, we had a Halloween dance. You know, Glenn, you and I were talking about how fun it is to go to a dance sober. This one old boy said the greatest thing about going to a dance sober is you can stay for the fanny patting but leave before the fight starts. <laughs> but this, so we went to this AA, this was an AA Halloween costume party, and I asked Blanche if she'd like to go, and she said, fine, I'll take my own car and meet you there. <laughs> you know, I'm 40 years old, and my date's in another car. <laughs> Well, we had a real good time and enjoyed it. And when we got through, I took her, walked her out to her car, and she shook hands with me and got in and left. And I thought, this ain't the way it used to work. (laughs) Something's the matter here, you know. But anyway, about six weeks later, they had what we call out there in West Texas an eating meeting up in the town about 60 miles north of Midland. I don't know if anybody cares, but it's La Mesa, Texas. And they, we were invited to take a program up there, so I invited Blanche, and she said, Fine, how many are going in the car? And I said, Six. She said, uh, With you. And she said, I'll go. So we went up there, and I shared a little bit, you know. We took the program. We all took, talked about 10, 15 minutes. And when we got through, we're driving back, and, La- and Blanche let me hold her hand. Isn't this tender? <laughs> Damn, this is something. You know, she had heard about my honesty and about my trying to clean up the wreckage of my past, and she decided that I didn't act like alcoholics that she knew. And she decided that it was all right if I started dating her. So we started dating on a regular basis, and it came around. This was in October, and we went all the way around, and we got down to what, in September, there's a... Out there in Brownwood, Texas, there's a lake called Lake Brownwood, and the AAs have a big church. 
they rent this church camp and have a retreat or AA conference there by the lake. And it's very spiritual setting and everything else. And so on the Saturday night, they had one of these spiritual talks. And they're in one of these water-walking jobs. And we come out of there, <laughs> and, you know, we come out of there just floating around and blessing each other and running into tree trunks. And <laughs> Blanche and I walk down by the lake, and here are these rock ledges, and we sit down in this church crosses up in the background and the moon's just right and we're sitting there and I asked her to marry me and she said yes and my stomach went I thought what the hell have I gotten myself into you know accepting the responsibility of her and the little four year old boy and we went on and got married had a very nice wedding had the reception at the 710 club and right in the middle of it we're all eating cake and ice cream and having a good time some old wino walks in with tennis shoes and they didn't give him orange juice and honey they just gave him a piece of wedding cake hell I guess he thought they did that every night (laughs) he just had a heck of a time you know well we went on and we started rocking along and I was working and we were married and the little boy and these this fate that steps in again this woman, widow woman in Midland called Blanche and said, I hear you're getting married, and I've got a house that I want to get rid of, and I can't seem to sell it to anybody, and I want to move in with my mother in an apartment and take care of her, and I'll just give it to you if you'll take up the payments. $104 a month, and we got this house. And all of a sudden, from our AA friends, we start getting divans and chairs coffee tables, we got an old refrigerator, a washing machine, beds, we even got a damn dog. (laughs) Hell, the dog was goofier than the lady that brought it. That is a neurotic dog if I ever saw one. Well, Blanche is working and I'm working and we're trying to do what we can and go to AA when we can. We got this four-year-old boy, and uh, so that next, about six months later, the phone rings. And from way back in my past, my 14-year-old daughter said, Daddy, I talked it over with Mother, and she said that if you and Blanche will have me, I can come and live with you and have the same kind of home life you have. Alcoholics Anonymous. One father, one mother, one husband, one wife, one daughter, one son, one dog. We all went by the same name. And to this day... In our house, we have never, ever allowed the word stepchild to be used. We're family. That's the way we work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That, to me, if you accept one, you accept them all. And that's it. You know, my daughter, we were fortunate enough when she graduated from high school... 
that we sent her up to Texas Tech University and she got a degree and she married this old boy which the marriage has since been dissolved thank goodness I don't have to practice tolerance for that bastard anymore (laughs) and our boy came along and Glenn and I were talking, and he was very athletic. And we just, and I got so wrapped up in that boy and my daughter and, and athletics that we, it was a true joy to accept the opportunities and to think if I'd been drinking, these things would have passed me by. Well, when he graduated from high school, he went to Texas Tech because his sister lived up there in Lubbock, and he wanted to be near family. Well, he's gotten a degree, and he's now working for Texaco as a landman in New Orleans. My daughter is very well employed as an interior decorator in Lubbock, and we miss them. That's the way life is. We miss our children. You know, one time when my son was 16 years old, he was taking chemistry in high school, and I came home and went out in the backyard, and he was sitting there with a hammer driving worms into the ground. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we mixed up this concoction in chemistry class, and you can take one drop and put it on a worm, and it'll make it just like a nail. I said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. I said, son, you give me that potion... And I'll buy you a new Thunderbird. (laughs) He said, okay. So the next morning he came in for breakfast and he looked out the window and in the driveway was a brand new Cadillac. I said, what do you think? And he said, I thought you said you were going to give me a Thunderbird. I said, I did. It's in the garage. The Cadillac's from your mother. Well, let's see. Here's one. A drunk woke up after the San Francisco earthquake and said, How in the hell am I going to pay for this? You know, in August, I became 65 years old, and I'm still gainfully employed. The company said I didn't have to retire, and they like me being around, and I enjoy it because I'm in a supervisory capacity, and I have a nice staff working under me. And so I was told that I should go down to the Social Security office to become eligible for this Medicare and everything else and to sign up when you're 65. So I went down there. Blanche had the car, and there wasn't a place to park, so she let me out, and I went in. And she, So I filled out all the form, and the lady says, uh, well... Uh, you have your birth certificate with you? I said, oh, darn, I forgot that. I don't know. It's at home in the in, in the lockbox. I can get it for you. And she said, well, while I'm processing these papers, do you let me see your driver's license. And I reached back, and I'd left the darn thing in the car, and I forgot it. And I said, I don't even have my driver's license with me. And she said, well, I'd like to get this going. Is there anything that you can prove that you're 65? And I said, well, yeah. And so I unbuttoned my shirt, 
took my shirt off and showed her all the white hairs on my chest. She said, well, yeah, I ain't by 65. White hairs like that's got to be 65. Well, I'll start processing your papers, and we'll take care of it later. So I went home, and Blanche says, well, how'd you do? And I explained it to her, and I said, I got down there, and I forgot my, my darned old birth certificate and my driver's license. And I didn't have any way of showing I was 65, so I just took the shirt off and showed her the white hairs on my chest so I could qualify for the benefits. She said, why didn't you drop your pants and go for full disability? <laughs> You know, we used to have an old boy in our group named Abe Brunel, and he was a little old sickly guy. He died about a couple of years ago, and he had 16, 18 years sobriety. And he'd had heart trouble and all this, and everything was wrong with him, and he kept coming to meetings and always had a good word to say about everybody. And one day I was walked in there and he handed me a plaque which I put on the wall right beside my bed so I can see it every morning when I wake up. And it says, Please, Lord, teach us to laugh again, but don't ever let us forget that we cried. And I think that's what I did with you tonight as I told you the worst things that happened in my life, the worst parts of my life and degrading, loss of self-respect, loss of the opportunities, and loss of the future. And I shared it with you, and we had some laughs over it. You know, it's a funny thing. I think it was Mark Twain that said, humor is tragedy plus time. I told you the worst things that happened in my life, and we laughed. Isn't that paradoxical? You know, somebody will come into AA, and he gets up and he says, I lost my job, and my wife left me, and somebody cut my tires, and everybody laughs like hell. <laughs> About three months later, he says, I got a job, and my wife came back, and my kids sat on my lap, and everybody starts crying. <laughs> this is the damnedest thing I ever saw in my life. Can you imagine some outsider listening to all this crap? You know, one time when I was going to talk in Hobbs, New Mexico, and Blanche gave me a little plaque that I have on the wall that says life is too important to be taken seriously. And think about that. Think about the next time you've got problems. You know, I was talking to somebody, and I was pretty bad sick in August. I had a real problem, and they had me in the hospital for about nine days, and I was being given IVs, and I had a an, an bad infection in my foot, and it was dangerous, but I'm getting over it. But I was lying in the hospital at one night. Blanche had left, and the minister used to come up there and talk to me, and some of the AA people and everything. And I was sitting there feeling sorry for myself. And the phone rang. And it was a real good AA friend of mine. 
had five years sobriety and he'd had a slip and he wanted to talk to somebody that could console him and tell him what to do. I was sitting in this hospital feeling so sorry for myself and a guy felt strong enough that he wanted my opinion and wanted me to talk to him and all of a sudden my problem wasn't bad anymore. All of a sudden, I could help somebody else. And the outlook of my life turned around that night. That I could do, I could practice AA and take it off of inward self and carry the message to somebody that still suffered. He did me the greatest favor in the world. Maybe he got drunk for me. Maybe that's the way it works. He's sober right now. And I'm well right now. And we both feel good about it. One time, there was an old boy in our place called Val Collier. And he died. And he had about 16 years sobriety. And he had about an 8th grade education. And we were going to take him out and bury him. We had this... Went out to the, had a real nice funeral, and all of Paul Bears were in AA. So we go out there to the cemetery, and they back the hearse up, and we're getting Val out to take him over to the place where they're going to have the ceremony out there. And the the uh, funeral director's named Nooney Ellis, of all things, and he says, "All right." You fellas, everybody grab the casket with your right hand. <laughs> and you can see what's happening, can't you? So we follow directions, you know, on AA. They'll say, you know, keep coming back. <laughs> so we all grab, and we start going around in circles with this damn casket. Finally, I said, I was up in the front, and we were tripping over tombstones and everything, and finally I said, Noonie, just get the hell out of the way. We'll take care of Val. We have to put him down and get started again. And we get over there, and when they get through, we, the last thing they'd said to finish the service, we said the serenity prayer. And we're walking back over to the where the pallbearers were being carried back to town, and Nooney says, You AAs are just like the mafia. And I said, What do you mean? He said, You sure take care of each other, don't you? I said, I guess we do, Nooney. I guess we do. You know, that's real nice to think of it. Whenever you get ready to go, when everything's good or when everything's bad, you can share their, your experience, strength, and hope with each other and solve your common problems. So you, too, can help others to recover from alcoholism. Blanche and I want to thank you for the opportunity. I've gotten mine over with. I'm going to thoroughly enjoy this weekend in Jekyll Island, Georgia. I'm going to play golf tomorrow. They're going to whip me like a Salvation Army drum. 
but I'm going to enjoy the hospitality and the friendship, and my name is Scotty, and I'm an alcoholic. My name's Scotty, and my wife's name's Blanche, and she's a black belt Al-Anon. <laughs> and thank you for having us here. Great job. Thank you. <clears throat>